This is Visa V, a new podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Visa V features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon Sorbonne, and Ecole Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face to face with, or as we say in French, vis a vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Sciences Po Paris on March 13th, 2023, on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the Alliance program. Welcome to all of you. Tonight's panel is entitled Climate Change Towards a New Paradigm. Today, more than ever, climate change and its effects are in the news. On the one hand, what we learn is a constant cause of alarm. The number and the intensity of hurricanes is on the rise. Forests the world over are decimated by wildfires. And communities in low-lying lands like Bangladesh are devastated by floods. Many countries are not keeping up with their zero carbon commitments and investments in fossil fuel continue. Just today, uh, we learned that the US administration will probably move ahead with an 8 million drilling project in Alaska. But perhaps we should also draw comfort from the news coverage on climate. It's a sign that uh, the threat of climate change is being taken seriously, increasingly, uh, by a large part of the population. And there are some positive developments too. The US is back in the climate agreement. Um, The COP27 recently led to a breakthrough loss and damage funding uh, to support developing countries suffering the worst effects of climate change. Um, There are 2,000 at least climate-related court cases today, and some companies are making good on their ESG commitments. So does this amount to a real shift? Have we finally reached a tipping point in our collective determination to fight climate change? Will historians of the future say the 2020s was the decade where humanity started walking away from the precipice? To disentangle those questions, We are privileged today um, to have a powerful panel of thinkers and experts. Let me introduce you to them very briefly. Um, Professor Joe Stiglitz, you're a professor at Columbia University. You're the co-chair of the high-level expert group on the measurement of economic performance and social progress at the OECD and the chief economist at the Roosevelt Institute. You were awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in economics in 2001. Your accomplishments are too many to cite, but you are the author of numerous books, including most recently People, Power and Profits, Rewriting the Rules of uh, the European Economy and Globalization and its Discontents Revisited. Professor Laurence Toubiana, you are the CEO of the European Climate Foundation and a professor at Sciences Po. Before joining ECF, you were France's climate change ambassador and special representative for COP21, and as such, a key architect of the landmark Paris Agreement. From 1997 to 2002, you served as senior advisor on the environment 
to the French Prime Minister, Lionel Jospin. You founded in 2002 the Paris-based Institute of Sustainable Development and International Relations. Mireille Chirolo-Assouline, you are a professor at uh, Paris Panthéon-Sorbonne University and at the Paris School of Economics. Your research and expertise are in environmental economics, taxation, and its economic effects, policies for curbing greenhouse gases, corporate, social, and environmental responsibility, and the, and the political economy of the environment. And finally, uh, last but not least, Professor um, Patricia Griffo. Uh, you're a professor of economics at École Polytechnique. You are also an associate research fellow of Cyrano in Montreal, of the Institut Politique uh, des Politiques Publiques and the Institut Louis Bachelier. At École Polytechnique, you are the director of the MSc in Economics for Smart Cities and Climate Policy, the research initiative for sustainable finance and uh, responsible investment, and deputy director of Energy for Climate, the interdisciplinary center. Professor Stiglitz, um, let me turn to you first and let's start with probably one of the biggest questions today uh, concerning the developing world. We know that climate change has a disproportionate impact on poor countries. For example, 95% of victims of natural disasters are in developing countries. And the cost of these disasters to uh, those countries is 20 times higher than for rich countries. Last November, the COP27 conference concluded with the historic decision to establish loss, a loss and damage fund to help developing countries cope with energy transition. What impact will this decision have on developing countries? And do you think that it will succeed somehow in creating a level playing field between rich and poor countries? So first let me say uh, uh, what a pleasure it is for me to be here. Now, as an economist, I hate to say it's all about money. Um, it's not all about money, but money is really important. And uh, we haven't given the money that we promised for adaptation and mitigation. And now creating a, another fund where we say we'll give money. Uh, if we haven't given to the first two, why do we believe that we'll be uh, money for the third? So right now, there are more emissions coming from developing countries than developed countries. But it's really important for those in the developed countries to realize that no matter what we do to get our emissions down to zero, it won't solve the problem of climate change, which is a global problem, unless we get the developing countries and emerging markets on board. And I think admitting that we had some culpability for where we are was an important step in getting them on board. Mm -hmm. But the, the real issue going forward is the money. But it's not the only issue. Meeting our goals of addressing climate change is going to require knowledge. And one of the problems has been the intellectual property regime, which restricts access to knowledge that would enable those in developing countries and emerging markets to uh, go further in reducing their emissions. In the Rio Agreement, there was a recognition of the importance of this, uh, a notion of compulsory licenses, which we have in the context of health. 
But the health of the planet is every bit as important as the health of individuals. But the United States and Europe have consistently tried to forget about those obligations in the sharing of knowledge. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm not very optimistic given how badly we behaved with respect to the intellectual property related to the pandemic, to COVID-19, mm-hmm. uh, where it was so obvious in all of our interests that that, that ought, knowledge ought to be shared, mm-hmm. and yet we still do not have a waiver on intellectual property related to therapeutics, tests, treatments. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And, I mean, this was, of course, COP27. Professor Tubiana, you were you know, instrumental uh, in creating the Paris Agreement at COP21. And so I'm wondering in terms of achievements, this global framework that was created to avoid catastrophic climate change by limiting global warming to two, uh, below two degrees, nearly nine years on, what is your assessment of the success of the Paris Agreement? And Has it been a turning point in the world's recognition of the urgency of climate change? I think that Paris Agreement has a turning point, which I believe, not because she's my baby, but uh, of course, sometimes we are a little bit too proud of it. But the governance of the global system, it's very, very fragmented. You have uh, whatever happened in the World Bank or IMF or elsewhere. You have many governance systems with different objectives. The Paris Agreement, uh, beyond the commitment of the parties to deliver, which they are deliver very slowly, but they are delivering partly, we will come, I will come back to that, has played a role to unify the reference of the objective of a system which is by nature very fragmented. And when I see the youth demonstrating in the street, as well as CEOs of companies, of banks, or of course, governments and uh, international institutions referring to Paris Agreement, I think that's a very big value. Now, of course, the problem is implementation of this commitment. I do think that on one side, things are working. Now, 90% of government has uh, committed for net zero emission by 2050, which was unimaginable before Paris. And it is in the Article 2, of course. It was a major shift of understanding and representation of what climate change means. It's so totally different what we agreed in 1997 in Kyoto. It was incremental in 1997. It was every country in 2000 uh, in COP21. Now we are just, it's too slow. If we had had the Paris Agreement 10 years before, maybe in Copenhagen or even before, I think we will be probably relatively okay. But we have been so long in designing with so much conflict between North and South, so much willingness, of course, on the oil and gas sector to block any negotiation. So we have been delayed in the compromise we got. And now we have to accelerate with a rhythm, which is, of course, very roaring, which should be decreasing emission by 7% a year. Uh, EU, at the max, it was relatively good result last year, was 25 of emission reduction. US has gone up. China has plateaued, yes, last year. So we may need to revise the governance of this agreement to have accountability in every place. That's why I'm very interested in in your point of view, how we can make companies really accountable, not voluntary commitment, but seriously. How we can have the World Bank really responding to the challenge. 
Thank you, and this is a, a great segue in, in, into my question to you, uh, Professor Shiholo Asurin. In terms of actions to combat climate change, carbon pricing is a very potent tool. Is there a correlation between carbon pricing and economic growth? And how important is carbon pricing generally uh, to making a real dent in reducing greenhouse gases? Carbon pricing is an essential tool. Uh, the issue is that uh, carbon emitters don't take into account the effects of their emissions. What do they take into account? Only their private cost. And so if it is not costly to uh, emit carbon, there is no reason to reduce the emissions. And this is a, the basic principle of carbon pricing. But these prices, because there are uh, market prices, are very volatile. For example, one year ago, just after uh, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, the European price on the carbon market fell below 60 euros per ton. It was at 100 and it fell. It fell again in September. It is now again at 100 euros. This is an issue because if you want that carbon emitters anticipate and make their strategies accordingly to this carbon price, if these prices are not stable, this is a real issue. Another point I, I would like to make is that these prices apply only to a fraction of the emissions concerned. For the European Union, the carbon market applies only on the industry and power generation. Nearly 40% of European emissions. To your uh, other question, is there a correlation between carbon pricing and the economic growth? For sure, it is easier to implement a carbon price in a wealthy economy. This is perhaps the only correlation I see. People or firms were very afraid of carbon pricing, saying that it would decrease their competitiveness and it would be bad for the economy. But I will take the Swedish example. In Sweden, since the implementation of this carbon tax, the GDP growth was 83% and the CO2 emissions decreased by, I think, more than 35%. And so, you see, carbon pricing may be very efficient in reducing emissions without impeding economic growth. Everything depends on the way you implement this policy. I mean, another tool that you have in the toolbox to impact climate change is um, ESG. And I'd like to turn to you, um, Patricia Grifo. So ESG refers to environment, society, or social and governance. It's an increasingly popular way of measuring a company's impact on the environment, on social equity, and corporate governance. There's a uh, a new practice in some companies to implement ESG contracts, which are included in CEO's packages. Um, performance on ESG objectives are reflected as well in companies' annual reports. 
what is the real impact of these measures? I mean, when you have you know, ESG in, a, in the contract of a CEO, does that really incentivize the company to take real steps to reduce carbon emissions, or is this simply window dressing? I mean, uh, money is really a, a way to incentivize. The question is, is it window dressing or not? First of all, let me just highlight that around the world, one third of the companies worldwide uh, listed on the stock market, but also smaller size companies, implement such kind of ESG bonuses. So it's a real rising phenomenon. So we can, I mean, we can be skeptical, okay? We, we can say, okay, is it greenwashing or not? Let me take a few examples. What form does it take? Apple uh, in the Silicon Valley has decided that 10% of its uh, top executive bonuses would be based on ESG factors that should be well uh, measured. But in Europe also, the Deutsche Bank, for instance, that's very interesting that banks also do that, has decided to implement such kind of policy. There are some differences between short-run and long-run bonuses. Unfortunately, most of the indicators, most of them are based on social performance, but for long-term performance, most of the companies implement such kind of business based on uh, environmental performance. So there are some hope in this. Once the company is really uh, sincere, when it's uh, put in place uh, a consistent framework, it works. It seems to work. For some people, these incentives are not necessary, and uh, increasingly particularly in Europe, there is talk of, of degrowth. So this is a, a new notion. And I'd like to have your take on this, Professor uh, Stiglitz. You know, the idea is that in the face of the existential threat that climate change poses for humanity, focusing our efforts on sustainable growth and energy transition will just not be enough. The, the entire model of capitalism and the premise on which it's based, the premise of growth, needs to be rethought. Do you agree? And can indeed achieving zero uh, net zero emissions be compatible with sustainable economic growth? I want to make a couple of comments on a few of the other remarks that have been made. Um, one of the peculiar things of what's going on in the United States is that several states are passing laws that you cannot use ESG. It is perverse. But the interesting thing here is the way globalization is interacting because uh, you refer to you know, a lot of the global companies. The global companies are going to have global standards. And the fact that they're operating in Europe and have to attain these standards is going to affect their operations in the United States. So this is, you know, I, I've been very critical of many aspects of globalization. This is one of the positive aspects of globalization, that is Europe's leadership has foisted a set of higher standards that have now become the global standards. Now, to answer the, your question about degrowth, I don't think that's the solution for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are a lot of people in the world, we may uh, feel this here or in New York, uh, do not have adequate food, health care, we cannot tell the developing countries, you can't grow. Secondly, I think part of the answer to climate change is innovation. It's decarbonizing the economy that we have. Again, I don't want to sound self-interested here, but that's about the knowledge business. And I actually think, Nick Stern and I have written a paper on this recently, the pursuit of the green agenda 
can be the basis of real economic growth. I mean, just think about one of the bases of growth is increases in productivity. The reduction in the cost of energy from the reducing uh, the cost of producing renewables is an enormous savings of resources. And that means that we can have more output with less input. So I think that the degrowth agenda hasn't really focused on what our objective should be. We have to have a world in which we have zero carbon. We also have to have a world where we're going to have greater equity and address the problems of poverty in the third world. Right. Professor Tubiana, Professor Stiglitz just raised the very important issue of social justice and equality. The 2018 Yellow Vest movement in France showed that energy transition measures could not be successfully implemented without popular support, and particularly that social justice really had to be at the heart of the equation. How do you balance social justice and policies aimed at carbon emissions? Can, how do you make sure that they are not incompatible, but that they basically respond one to the, to the other? The problem is we have based all the economic growth, and that was knowledge is absolutely crucial, on an extractive model. We, even now, the green economy is struggling to not be an extractive economy. Now, a new type of minerals and not oil and gas, but it's still an extraction of natural resources. And this has a, a limit. This has a limit. In particular, if we want to have everybody having access to quality food, health, housing, we cannot just think that we can continue with the extractive model and replacing also uh, drilling by mining of copper or cobalt or lithium everywhere on the planet. So I think we have to rethink the way we are working. And we have, through technology, many, many possibilities, just recycling, for example. On the social justice element, one element which I'm very proud of, we have had together with Claude and at IDRI, a bright student who is now leading with Thomas Piketty, uh, a very, very good job about uh, carbon footprint and the inequality of the carbon footprint, not between countries, but within countries. And when you look at the carbon footprint of the 1% more wealthy, you see that the problem may be in the way we are living, not the 80% or the 99%, it's a 1%. There was a very anecdote these days about the carbon emission of one guy, and in one week he made how emissions that equivalent of the emission of somebody uh, in many developing countries or even in Europe. So first, justice has to be really that everybody support the cost in participation of their own carbon footprint, that at least people that really have a huge carbon footprint pay the price. So that's one. Second, if we do well, if there is no government failure, in particular in the infrastructure and investment, there is no necessity to see that environment policies has to be regressive, which they are for the moment. Because when you tax and you don't have any solution to take public transport, of you, you are, you are penalized. And it's more important for you if you earn 2,000 euros a month than if you earn 10,000, which you don't care really about the carbon tax on a vehicle. So I think you can do compensation. You can issue, of course, compensation money like the Canadians are doing. It is good to give check to people uh, because they pay an additional price to, for transport, private transport, for example. 
And finally, look at the food issue, which is not only the yellow vest problem, but was, and it is now in France, for example, access to healthy food is super expensive. Why? Because we have a whole organized system of the agro-food industry who is more interested in margin of profit than to really uh, offer a sustainable food with, of course, a different type of agriculture. Looking back at your work, Joe, when you did capitalism and greed, is more the problem that capitalism and the functioning of the economy. So the greed element is something that will kill us all. Look at the profit, five trillion, I think, of the oil and gas industries this year, in 2022. Five times what they earn in 2021. So I don't think there's a lot of economic sense in this. Professor Shiola Sudin, one question really about incentives, and sometimes Incentives, it seems to me, uh, can have unpredictable effects. So the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which is essentially an environmental act, will invest $370 billion uh, of government support into renewable energy technology, which is fantastic. But in Europe, many governments are actually worried that these incentives will lead many European companies to relocate in the United States to benefit from these uh, subsidies. So will it generate a kind of green industry race, creating counterproductive competition? And how do you avoid putting certain countries at an unfair advantage when you create those kinds of incentives? In this passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the good news is that uh, after four disastrous years of uh, absence of uh, climate change policy in the United States, now things uh, have really changed. This plan shows a real willingness to engage effectively in the energy transition. The less good news uh, is that a large part of this aid is conditional on the local content of production. And this is protectionism. These incentives are in danger of driving many European companies to the US. The amount of subsidies is very huge, but you have to compute it per year. And on a yearly basis, they are twice lower than in Europe. And so if we observe relocation of industries from Europe to the United States, I think it will not be due to uh, this Inflation Reduction Act, but more to the low price of energy in the United States. And another point I, I would like to make, the real competitors here are not really European industries. They are more Chinese industries, uh, low-cost Chinese industries, and this is a common competitor for European and uh, American uh, industries. My view is that uh, such a race uh, will have global benefits. If power generation, uh, both in the United States and in Europe, uh, is increasingly green, knowledge uh, will increase, uh, positive externalities of knowledge uh, will, uh, will benefit also to developing countries, and I think that such uh, an industry race uh, is not a bad thing. 
economists uh, may think that if uh, research and development expenditures are in excess, you may have duplicate uh, uh, efforts. I think uh, that uh, this is not uh, a big deal and uh, we should have uh, more beneficial impacts than uh, detrimental ones. It remains for me really to thank you. Uh, thank you for a rich and inspiring discussion. Vis-a-vis -vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris and Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Abdelbasid Ali, and I'm Emmanuel Ketan. Special thanks to Michelle Wilson and her colleagues at Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research, and collaboration between the U.S. and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.